Hey there, it's Jay Veal. On The Secret Show, Will Salatin was sitting in for Sarah Longwell today, and we talked all about his book about Lindsey Graham and the rise of authoritarianism in America and the decline of parties and institutions. It's a really long and kind of meandering conversation, but I think you're going to like it. Here's the show. And we ended last night, Will, with me asking you a question that I, I teased and I said, and people can come in and, and get the answer on the secret pod. My question was, looking at the transformation that Graham underwent and looking at all of the reasons why you lay out people make these transformations and how they rationalize and how they do it. Do you believe that there is a, your, uh, how, how do you pronounce it? A uh, uh, heuristic? Is that uh, how it's yeah, pronounced? Heuristic sounds right. Uh, through which one could have looked at, say, Liz Cheney and Lindsey Graham simultaneously in 2015 and said, this, this one of them, this guy is going to go along with it. And this one, this woman over here is not. Do you think there is, a, or is it all a crapshoot? So it's, first of all, I think we should be really humble about our ability to predict this stuff because okay, I'm so not, I'm very, very good at it. <laughs> so it just, it, if, if the JVL shirt says JVL is always right. And the Sarah shirt says Sarah's always right. The Will shirt says Will is often wrong. Will Will as Will is very very humble about the his ability to know what is what is going to happen and what is not going to happen. I, I am a huge believer in retrospective analysis, which means that looking at your mistakes and what you got wrong. So, a lot of people, for example, got did not see Lindsey Graham becoming what he became, and so I think even today it would be hard for me to. I mean, I'm thinking now of Tim's book. Did Tim really know that Elise Stefanik was going to turn out to be what she is? I, it doesn't appear that way. Um, so, but but it, I think to answer your question, it is true that you can look at certain personality traits and project them forward. So let's take a couple of pairings: Lindsey Graham and John McCain. You could have looked at John McCain and, and said, this guy has a very stubborn, willful personality. He gets it in his head. He has a principle in his mind. He won't let go. And the more you try to pull him away from it, the more he digs in. That guy is less likely, just on the basis, it's not moral. It's not really moral. It's a personality trait. Less likely to go along with the crowd, including the Trump crowd. And if you had made that prediction, you would have been right. Um, let's go to your other example here, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, I find fascinating, and I find her fascinating because she's the daughter of Liz Cheney and of, of um, Lynn Cheney and um, Dick Cheney. And so many people on the left love Liz Cheney, but hate Dick Cheney. And the reason is, of course, is the Iraq war. But Liz and her father are very, very similar. And it's almost a historical accident which villain appears in their lifetime. And for whatever reason, Dick Cheney seized on Saddam Hussein and decided he was going to stop this guy by any means necessary and did so. And it turned out to my, from my, and I was one of the people who supported the Iraq war, but that turned out to be a very bad use of a largely useful trait, um, which was, you know, find a villain and stand up to them. In Liz Cheney's life, the villain has turned out to be Donald Trump. And so that same trait that made her father harmful has made her useful and helpful. 
Um, so I guess that's sort of my answer. You can look at personality and project forward and make a prediction as to how they will deal with uh, a movement that comes at them. But what that movement is, what that idea is, varies according to you know the vagaries of history. Yeah, I think, I mean, anybody whose driving personality trait is that they like being in the mix, right? Uh, those people are always going to be susceptible to, to following with whatever it is, even if whatever it is, is a, is a demagogue, right? Because that's, and, and that with Lindsay, I mean, it's clear that this is a guy who just looked the number of public statements, right? Um, and also did, did you, is it tr possible that you have read or listened to every public utterance this guy has made? <laughs> Over the last, because I was thinking about this, and I was wondering. I don't know that there's anything that he said that escaped your eye, and that that would be amazing. You have listened to more Lindsey Graham than anybody other than Lindsey Graham. Yeah, I know way too much. Uh, the, I think the answer to your question is: if I could, certainly, if I could find it, I found it. That is, so anything that Lindsey Graham himself had documented, if there was a link to an interview, if it was on, you know, some stuff has disappeared to time. Yeah, right. local interviews in South Carolina can't be found anymore. But if it's on the internet, I even went to Media Matters. They they had a couple of uh, if it's if his radio interviews that are no longer available anywhere else. People who just you know anyway, it it makes it possible to reconstruct it. Can I come back to what you just said though, JBL? Yeah, sure. About the sort of wanting to be in the middle of things. That you're exactly right. That turned out to be a great predictor of how Graham would behave. And here's a really curious thing that I didn't discover till the end of the project. So all this time, I, Lindsey Graham had turned, after Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated um, by MBS, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Lindsey Graham drew a line, very un-Lindsey Graham-like, said, I'm this guy, MBS, is a loose cannon. He's dangerous. I will not deal with him anymore. And didn't didn't for five years, held out. And so that's the way, I, that's what I thought the story of Lindsey Graham in Saudi Arabia was. And then just in the last month or so, Lindsey Graham turns around, goes to Saudi Arabia, sucks up to MBS, says, thank you, what, what has happened? There's some stuff going on with Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia is changing, but also Saudi Arabia has cut a deal to buy $37 billion worth of aircraft from Boeing. It's going to create jobs in South Carolina and Lindsey Graham. So Lindsey Graham goes over to Saudi Arabia, meets with MBS, has an interview with Al Arabiya, which he did not put on any of his websites. I just oh, found it separately. So this is not something you would find unless you went looking for it. And in this interview, he says, you come to South Carolina and you you spend $37 billion, I'm going to come say thank you. So money turns him around, right? But he also says in the interview, when the interviewer asks him, why did you change your position on Saudi Arabia and come back? He says, he uses that phrase, fear of missing out. Fear yeah. of missing out. And that is a Lindsey Graham thing. And what's fascinating to me, JVL, is... If you'd made that prediction, you would have had to wait five years for it to come true. That fear of missing out made him a trumper and made him come back to MBS. But your prediction eventually turned out to be true. Something was going on with that core, that core subset of adults in America, where in 2016, the idea of political violence thrilled them. 
in ways. And and I guess my question to you is, was that new? Did something change? A lot of a lot of people suggest that Obama is what changed it, right? Having having a black president like broke these people's brains. And I don't know if I believe that or not. That's it's certainly a an interesting it's it's not a crazy theory to have. But the other possibility here is that nobody had offered them political violence before. Right. I mean, the institutions had been good enough at keeping that away off of the menu that uh, people, you know, they were being given choices between Rick Santorum and Mitt Romney, you know, or between George W. Bush and John McCain. Uh, And when some when somebody put it on the menu and they saw it there for the first time, they were like, yes, this is what I've been looking for my whole (laughs) life. I don't know. I what do you where are you on this? Yeah, I I I. a couple, you just raised a couple of really interesting points there. So nobody offered it before. That resonates with me because I think of Trump as kind of like a, almost like a microorganism. He, he that that he's like a machine that um, figures out. He he ignores norms that went before, and he, what what if we try this? So the classic one is Trump. I think is the one of the first people who came along and effect. I mean, Pat Buchanan was too, but. Trump comes along and says, so before Trump, there was a conservative, uh, there was a conservative demagoguery about immigration. We're going to keep out the evil non-white immigrants. There was a progressive, um, there was a progressive uh, ideology of uh, a progressive propaganda about trade, also anti-foreigner but wasn't about people, it was about goods. So Dick Gephardt, there was a whole strain of that in the Democratic Party. Trump comes along and says, why not both? Why can't I be both anti-trade and anti-immigration? Because then I can be anti-foreigner all the way through. And people love, uh, Americans love that. Surprisingly, people who've been here a couple of generations, keep the next foreigners out, right? Uh, so, So he's an innovator in exploiting what I would call the worst in us, the hateful instincts. And what you said just said about violence completely resonates with that. What if we ignore the taboo? What if instead of trying to civilize, trying to restrain, trying to gatekeep um, the, the worst in human nature, what if I just exploit it? And so he's had enormous success by doing that. And what held people back before? Morals. Trump just didn't have the morals. So that's one answer I'd give to you. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I I like that answer. Um, But I guess my question for you, though, is on the demand side of this, not the supply side. Were the voters always secretly longing for that thing, for that violence, or did something change to make them want it? So I'd be hesitant to talk about the voters because I think we're dealing with- I mean, the Republican primary voters. Yeah, even within that, I would draw- but, but, but- to answer your question, I think what you said about Obama is on point. That is to say, no offense to my conservative friends, but conservatism is largely reactive. Conservatism is standing athwart history. And what has history brought you in that moment? He has It has brought you Obama. And there is there was certainly a feeling among a lot of Republic, a lot of conservatives that the, the country was changing and things were a little scary. And, and so... Yeah, Trump was the, you know, there's obviously this cliche that every president is an antidote to the one who came before. And 
I remember when Trump came in and I thought, Trump is absolutely awful and it's a testament to the goodness of Obama that <laughs> the guy who came after him was a movement based on hate. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think there was, and JVL, the thing about Obama is I was always baffled by conservatives who didn't, who thought Obama was scary because to me, Obama was always talking about building bridges. He was always talking about, that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of some Republican I know. He was always looking for common ground. And so when people like Dinesh D'Souza came up, came up with this idea of Obama's rage and Obama trying to destroy America, I thought that was bizarre. But that seems to be a lot of what Trump sold and a lot of what he caught on to. So a friend of mine said to me the other day, he said, you know, I worry that it turns out that at any given moment, 20 to 30 percent of the population wants an authoritarian and they just want one that's on their side right it all depends on who gets to be the tyrant and uh i had never really considered that before we hit this moment in american politics but i i worry the re and the reason i worry that it's true is because i worry about democratic voters being put to the test because right now Ooh. democratic voters are the only thing that is is standing between this country and the abyss. And we need Democratic voters to be their best selves, and we need Democratic politicians to be their best selves. Because at this moment, it's deeply important that Democratic politicians win elections. Uh, and I, you know, it would be it would be very, very disconcerting to think that if a if a democratic demagogue, if a demagogue emerged in the Democratic Party, that they might find 20 to 30% support as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would like to think that that's not possible, but who knows? And I sure as hell don't want to test the proposition. Do you have thoughts about this? Yeah, I, so it, my my thought listening to you about that is is that it's actually quite plausible that something like that would happen. And the reason is, for another reason that I got into in the Lindsey Graham story, which is it part of the way that people like Graham in the Republican Party rationalized Trump was that they worked themselves into an idea that the other party was so dangerous that that any the Republicans had to unite around Trump because they because the Democrats had to be stopped, right? You're just lowering the standard. And so that's that was accomplished. They got Trump in, they defended Trump. And what I worry about is that the cycle will continue, it will just reverse, because Trump is so awful that, um, I mean, if in this moment Joe Biden were to die or, you know, have a stroke or something, or some, for whatever reason would have to step aside, and Democrats were looking at the prospect of a Donald Trump nomination on the Republican side, and Democrats were telling themselves, oh my God, this has to be stopped. This is an extinction level event for our democracy. And if the one of the principal alternatives that Democrats had to Joe Biden were a Democratic, a progressive demagogue, somebody who had sort of a Bernie Sanders view of the government is going to do everything. But I mean, right, we already have Democrats saying things like, let's pack the courts, right? Why? Because the other side is so dangerous, we have to stop them. The fil get rid of the filibuster, get rid of any institution that stands in the way of us grabbing a majority and doing whatever we want. Um, I think there would be a strong temptation to nominate a very charismatic progressive. You know, if imagine Michael Avenatti or somebody like that. 
who uh, coming I, I can I can totally see that happening because the the thinking would not be the other side has lost all their norms let's reestablish them it would be we have to maintain power so that the the evil enemy does not gain power so here is here's a structural counter argument which is that the Republican Party is uniquely vulnerable to a demagogue because the Republican Party is basically all the same person. It's 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 a bunch of uh, white Christians. And more than that, it is heavily male white Christians. And the, the Democratic coalition is so diverse that it would be hard to have a demagogue who could appeal to all of the parts of the coalition. So that, that would be the one... If you wanted to be hopeful about why Democrats uh, as a party, at least at this moment, would might not fall for a demagogue, it's just because, you know, you can hit, you can be a re- very successful as a Republican targeting a single group of voters because they, they make up 60% of the, the party itself. And that hmm. is not true on the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, you've got, uh, you know— some still some white working class labor types you have middle class educated professionals you have hispanics you have uh african americans it's just a you have people who are you know people who are agnostic or you know atheists and then you have uh deeply conservative church going older african americans it's just a bit you know what i'm saying it's it, the coalition is just much bigger, and it's hard to appeal to everybody on a platform of demagoguery. Uh, what else? Tell me, what else about Lindsay should we be thinking about going forward? Right? But lessons about. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about your piece um, is it's also a piece about parties and about party institutions. And I am in the awkward position of I hate political parties. I I hate any. I hate groups. I hate groups so much. Um, I, I feel like nobody should ever belong to one of these to these groups. <laughs> that uh, to do so is to compromise yourself when they should be serving you, and nobody should be able to tell you what to do. And you know, don't you're not the boss of me. All that stuff. <laughs> um, and yet, it is pretty clear uh, that parties are incredibly important as mediating institutions to try to keep figures like demagogues away from the, from the populace. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about this? No, you, you are the world's most tortured institutionalist. It's so funny. I mean, I think of institutionalism as sort of a theme that defines your, a lot of your thinking, but you rebel against them. You hate it even as you this, preach it. <laughs> this is, this is the, you've hit upon the Rosetta stone for me, which is that I hate myself, but I admire myself. So, uh, I, so yeah, it, it's good to be with other people. It's good to do things. Yeah, well, you're with wrong about that right off the bat. <laughs> Continue. So uh, look, so my Rosetta Stone is I'm I'm I've I came around in life to being a negativist. I'm interested in negation. So it would be great to live in a utopia, but um, it's much more important to negate the worst than it is to achieve the best. And part of that. part of what negates the worst in us is the availability of other people who disagree with us or you know with whom we have to work things out. So a, a person on his own can become the Unabomber. Um, 
if you now obviously a group together can become a group of terrorists or you know narco traffickers or whatever but by and large if you have to work in a political party with other people um so i i'm kind of a neoliberal and the democratic party i've had to sort of deal with progressives um but and there are ways in which i'm kind of trying to temper them right by saying look people you can't just have you can believe as i do that it's purely luck that I was born in the United States and anyone in principle should be allowed to live here. But we can't have this crazy business that's being run where we run people up the Western Hemisphere and, you know, charge them a lot of money to get them into the country and game the asylum system and all that. That's just nuts. Um, so I can sort of correct them in my view about that, but they will also point things out to me, you know, just to take some the some obvious examples. I tend not to pay attention to, I've traditionally had what's called white privilege. I didn't pay attention to a lot of that stuff until more progressive people brought it to my attention. Um, and so working with other people will just make you aware of things. And so that's what parties should do. And that's part of why I'm so alarmed by what you said about the Republican Party being all one thing, because that's really dangerous. I mean, homogeneity is the enemy. If you're all white Christians and you all think the same way, um, then you've lost that. You've lost the negation of being with people who are different from you. And so while the party does need to pursue a common objective, the fact that there are differences within the party or that there should be is part of what should make parties healthy. And that's why I worry about the homogeneity you're describing. Yeah, I think that that may be true. And we need, God knows, we need healthy parties. And we, I think we probably need stronger parties, right? This is, I mean, I... I joke about wishing that we could go back to choosing our presidential nominees in smoke-filled back rooms, but I kind of mean it in the same way that I kind of mean that I wish we could go back to pork barrel politics, because I feel like pork barrel politics was a a way to waste money, and what you were buying for that was you were buying a hedge against polarization, hmm. because... Uh, you know, so you're wasting resources, I guess, in in the strict dollars and cents. But what you're buying with that is uh, you're keeping polarization at bay because you are making transactional allies out of people and not mm -hmm. ideological allies because you're willing to, you know, hey, here's here's a uh, twenty million dollars for a dam in your district. Oh, sure, I'll vote for that thing. We're on the same <laughs> side, you know. And uh, and I I kind of wish we could go back to that. This is, I would say, one more. Think this is a a theme in the way I think, and I think the way you think as well is the dangers that stem from unintended consequences. Right. So the the move against pork barrel politics was meant to reform government to stop waste, mm -hmm. and it did. Except that it turns out that systems are so complicated, we often don't know what else is going on in them. Right. And it turns out that limiting pork barrel politics and reforming government waste does have consequences. Uh, same thing with the reform of the primary system for choosing presidential nominations, right? This is a ultimately a much more democratic way to operate. And it, it looks and feels like a, an important reform for democracy. And it worked out really well for like the first 45 years, but then we get to 2016 and all of a sudden it doesn't work so well. And, um, and when it fails, the, the danger, the, the possible consequences of that failure are catastrophic, 
right? So you get mm-hmm. you get marginal improvements in terms of your your average nominee, right? And maybe you get you get an Obama or you get a uh, Reagan probably would have figured out his way, but you know you you may get better star politicians a few times that otherwise you wouldn't have gotten through the the old smoke filled back rooms. But also you are opened up to these tail risks, which which can be catastrophic, which is gets to your negation, right? It gets to your, you know, let's yeah. not try to get the best. Let's try to avoid the worst. Right. I mean, there's the, the two obvious examples that come to me from, I mean, what you're talking about to some extent is fungibility. We make our problems fungible. There are things that can be bought off and that avoids, that limits conflict. So the good example is it, it may turn out, it's looking like possibly the debt ceiling crisis might be. Um, dealt with by a little bit of, you know, the Republicans now have, I mean, the Tea Party people are kind of illustrate what you're talking about. People who come into Congress who have like very strong ideological beliefs and it's very difficult to buy them off. And they that those people can create a crisis. But now there's talk about, well, we'll get some permitting reform, we'll, we'll recover some unspent COVID money, and you start to get a bargaining list where you can cut a deal and avoid a default. And that's great. On the other hand, you get... Something like Lindsey Graham saying, look, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia murdered a guy, had him cut up and, you know, a, a, a dissident journalist. That's unacceptable. I won't deal with him. But it turns out that $37 billion of investment in, in Boeing aircraft in South Carolina will buy off this senator. And, you know, so the money is corrupting at the same time as it makes it possible to solve problems. Hey again, it's JVL. The conversation goes on from there. If you want to hear the rest of the show, head over to Bulwark Plus and subscribe. We'd love to have you.